We are now known by the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and united as the Church, the body of Christ. Made new in the fullness of his love, because in Christ all things are made new. Good morning again. Uh, welcome to Christ Community Chapel. My name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors here on staff. Spend most of my days with community groups and global outreach, but uh, today I'm glad to bring God's word to us. I read a book recently called The Road to Character. A guy named David Brooks wrote it, and he described two kinds of people. There are people that have really, really good resumes, and there are people that have really impressive eulogies. There are some people, you get their resume and you read through their jobs, their education, their degrees, their success, their promotions, and it's pretty impressive. You are blown away, and if you could hire them, you would. The second type of people are people uh, that have impressive eulogies. You sit at their funeral and you hear people talk about them, and their character and their integrity their love and their devotion to their family, their generosity, their unselfishness, and you are equally blown away. If you could become them today, you would. And the question is, what type of person are you more like? If you had your resume in one hand, and somehow you had your eulogy in the other hand, which would be more impressive? Are you someone that knows how to market and sell just about anything? Or are you someone that knows how to sustain and endure and persevere through anything? Are you someone that knows how to lead and manage and develop everybody? Or are you someone that knows how to love and care and have compassion on anyone? David Brooks in his book makes this observation, and it's a pretty um, indicting observation. He says, our schools and our culture our companies are spending more time and more resources in helping us in our resumes and not our eulogies. He writes, many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than how to build an internal character. It's a sad observation, really. It's sad for our marriages. It's sad for our families. It's sad for our churches. And a little bit disheartening. So what he's saying is that we can be people who make and maximize the greatest profits for our companies, and yet we have no idea how to forgive the smallest of debts. We can engineer and lead and develop products and systems amazingly well, but when it comes to loving, respecting, and caring for others, we're lost. That's why our theme this year as a church is transformed in 2018. It's not that having an impressive resume is wrong or unchristian by any stretch. No. As a church, though, we hope that our resumes uh, pale in comparison to our eulogies. That more than just being people that they want to hire, we are a church, we are a group of people that people want to become. And the question is, how does that happen? How do we become those kind of people, and what does that look like? Turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 
chapter 5. We're on our, the first 21 verses of Ephesians. It'll be on the screen as well. Before I read our passage, let me just set a little bit of context, a little bit of background for the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are in week 8 of 10 for this book. So if you're new to our church or new to Ephesians, um, Ephesians really has two main parts. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about God and who He is, what He has done for us in Jesus. And then chapters 4 through 6 unpack who we are and how we are to live. Right? If you would go through chapters 1 through 3, you would read again and again and again of the grace and the love and the power of God in Jesus. You would read how He has forgiven us, how He has redeemed us and adopted us, and calls us his sons and his daughters. The first th three chapters are powerful, and they are beautiful. Then we turn to chapter 4, and it transitions. It pivots from looking about who God is and what he's done, for what that means now for you and for me. It gives us descriptions and instructions and commands for how we are to live, and hopefully what our eulogies will begin to look like. And right in the middle is chapter 5. So let me read it for us. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, not as Christ, loved, or as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to think of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just a few verses. This morning, I calculated 21 verses, 30 minutes. So we have 1.33333 minutes per verse, so we're going to move quickly. The first thing we need to see is in verse 1. Verse 1 sets the stage, it provides the framework for this entire passage. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This passage is framed in the context of a father child relationship. He's writing to beloved children who God is their father. 
I'm not sure how you normally think about your relationship with God, or if you don't have one, what you imagine it, it would be like. But in this passage, and really throughout the New Testament, what you'll see is this metaphor, this relationship is primary. Father-child relationship. So this morning, we have uh, some work to do. We have to become childlike. All right, we get to begin to think like a child, talk like a child, act like a child, and maybe even eat like a child today, all right? When I was growing up, I'd go to church every Sunday, and right when the sermon started, my mom would reach into her purse, and she would pull out candy for me and for my brother. On a good day, it was fruit Mentos. On a bad day, it was the normal mint Mentos. Well, I have good news today. In my pocket, I have fruit Mentos, not just for me, but for all of you. So the officers are actually going to come forward. This is not a test or a joke. And to get into this childlike mindset, please take one of the candies and please enjoy responsibly. As that is happening, let me, let me give you a flyover uh, to the passage, the overall structure. I've touched on it a bit. Uh, the main governing verse is in verse 1, right? This father-child relationship, and we're going to talk about that. But then the passage continues, and there's three uh, key markers I want to point out to you first. It all starts with the word walk. So in verse 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us. If you go down to verse 8, you'll see uh, walk as children of light. And then finally, in verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so there are two main things that we're going to do today. All right? The first is we're going we're to unpack verse 1 and see who we are and what God thinks of us in this father-child relationship. And then part 2, we're going to look at verses 2 through 21. And we're going to unpack and see the expectations of our Father for us and what we do. All right? So let's start. Let's unpack verse 1 as you are enjoying your Mentos. Hopefully you got strawberry. That's my favorite flavor. But verse 1, who are we and what God thinks of us? One theologian once said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing. And I would agree. I would add to that, what comes to mind when God thinks of you is just as important. So what you think of God is really important. But equally as important is what God thinks of you. Right? It's one thing to know um, for a son or daughter to think of their father. It's another thing to know what the father thinks of his son or his daughter. And so my question for you today, what comes to mind when God thinks of you? What comes to mind when he thinks of you? Not your spouse, not your kids, not your family, not your parents. What comes to mind when God, if you had to jot down a word or two, what what would you put down and why? 
I think when we begin to answer this question, we usually look one of two places. We look in or we look out. First, we look in. Earlier this week, my wife made a, a delicious new dish for our family. Me and my wife, and I have a son, Braden, who's two. Uh, it was broccoli, it was cheese, it was quinoa, it was chicken, and it was lots of broccoli. And the deal was this. My son is two. Three bites of broccoli gets you three small Oreos. It's a pretty good deal. I did not get that deal. Three small bites of broccoli for three small Oreos. That's a deal that doesn't just happen in the Hallwarda house. I'm guessing it happens in your house. And actually, I'm guessing it happens not just over dinner, but it happens in our friendships it happens in school, it happens in our companies, it happens in our jobs, it happens throughout our culture. This deal it becomes prominent. And the deal is this. If we exceed or meet expectations, people will love and value us well. Right? If you are a child and you listen well to your mom or your dad, they will love you a little bit more. If you are a student and you do well on a test or a paper, your teachers will respect you and treat you a little bit differently. If you meet your quota for your boss, your boss will become your friend. If you perform well, if you do what is asked, then you are loved and you get your Oreos. But what happens if you don't? Right, what happens when you get caught cheating? What happens when you get caught partying? What happens when you don't meet your quota at work? How are we, are we treated? How are we valued then? And this sort of deal we think happens with God too. If we perform well, if we meet his expectations as a mom or a dad, as a son or a daughter, as a businessman or a businesswoman, whatever it is, if we meet God's expectations, he will then think well of us and he will love us. But if we don't, if we slip up, if we mess, if we fail to do what he has asked us, then, then everything changes. This is something I think I struggle with um, probably the most. As a pastor, it's easy to begin to think and look inward about Myself, and that God's view and thought of me is based on ministry. It's based on a sermon. It's based on community groups. It's based on something within me. And it is an exhausting way to live. Because the question that you are always asking when you look into yourself is, is it enough? Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Did I do well enough? Am I enough? We look in. And the second place is we look out. We look out around us to the message and what we hear from culture. Right? Every culture, in some form or fashion, values some people more than others. Right? It's just true. There are qualities, there are characteristics about certain people that are higher up, that you are more lovable, and some people are less lovable. All right, I made a list. You can see if you agree with me. If you're well-educated, if you're successful, 
If you're good-looking, if you're talented, if you're rich, if you're white, and if you're male, you are seen as more lovable than not. The more of those you check off, the better. The less you you, uh, check off of those, the worse. There was a study done several years ago, and it measured a person's split-second response to an unknown object. The object was either a tool or a gun. And the study paired that unknown object with first uh, someone with black skin and then someone with white skin. They decide, was it a gun or a tool? You can probably guess how the results of that study went. Right? It revealed a bias that black people are more dangerous and they saw it as a weapon and white people are less dangerous and it was seen as a tool. And so what culture tends to tell people who are not white is that you are not as lovable and you are to be feared more than loved. Do you look in or do you look out? What answer is beginning to form in your mind about when God thinks of you, he thinks what? Let's ask this a different way. Let's approach this from a little bit of a different angle. What do you think comes to mind when God the Father thinks of Jesus, his son? What comes to mind when God the Father looks at and thinks about Jesus, his son? It's probably the most important question. I realize I don't ask this question really much before, but it is the most important question. Turn with me, Matthew chapter 3. says this and when Jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The words of God the Father to His Son, Jesus. Personal, intimate, powerful phrase from a father to his son. How many of us would long to hear something like that from our fathers? This is a picture of my son, Braden. He's a little over two years old. He just got his first haircut, first tall word at a rock of fade. I feel like he rocks it pretty well. My wife and I are not naive, or we're less naive maybe, based on studies like that, that we realize there is a certain value or lack of value that the culture will place on my son. And so every night we've started a routine. And their routine is probably similar to the ones you have with your kids or your grandkids. We, we read, we sing, we pray, and we snuggle. We read, we sing, we pray, and we snuggle. And I say the same four things to my son every night. I say, Braden, you are strong. You are smart. You are handsome. And you are loved. You are strong, you are smart, you are handsome, 
and you are loved. In you, Braden Michael, my son, I am well pleased. What I realized as a young father is the love that I have for Braden, however strong and fierce it may be, and the love that you have for your kids or your grandkids, however strong and fierce that might be, does not compare to the love between God the Father and God his Son. It is an incredibly powerful, personal love. And so why is it so important that we can grasp the love between the Father and the Son? Earlier in Ephesians, I mentioned how it described the grace and the love and the power of our God. It says this, It says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's sort of a weird phrase, isn't it? He blessed us in the beloved, capital B, referring to Jesus. And the phrase might be a little bit confusing, but the idea is actually um, pretty simple. See, what Christianity teaches above anything else, at the very central, the very heart of its teachings, is that what is true of Jesus is true of those who believe in him. What is true of Jesus is also true of those who know him and follow him, including his relationship with the Father. Jesus is called his beloved son. And in the same way, when we believe in him, we hear the same exact thing. We are God's beloved sons and daughters. And you might wonder how that works, or how that is actually true. Let's go back to the Hallward at dinner table. You remember the deal? Three bites of broccoli for three small Oreos. Right? And... How we commonly think of the deal is the only way to get Oreos is if we actually eat the broccoli ourselves. That is the only way. Right? Almost every other religion teaches the same exact thing. If you meet expectations, if you follow God well enough, then you will be accepted and then you will be loved. But Christianity is different. It teaches that not only do we not want the broccoli, but we don't choose and we don't eat the broccoli at all. We never meet the expectations of our God. We can't. And so we never get Oreos. But we have a really great older brother. And he comes down and he decides, I'm going to meet the expectations of the Father. He says, I'm going to live the life that you couldn't live. I'm going to eat the broccoli you could not eat. So that you can get my Oreos. The gospel in the simplest form I can tell you is that Jesus ate our broccoli and we get his Oreos. Jesus met the expectations of the Father so that we can become children of God, we can become beloved. So what comes to mind when God thinks of you? He's not looking in. He's not looking to what you have done or undone. He doesn't have a tally next to your name. He's not looking out. He doesn't see what culture is saying or believes or studies to figure out what he should think or believe about you. 
No, he looks towards Jesus. When he thinks of you, he thinks of Jesus. And the same love that he has for his son is the same love he has for you. And so maybe you've not heard it before. Or maybe it's been a really long time since someone has actually told you. But in Jesus, you are strong. In Jesus, you are smart. In Jesus, you are handsome. You are beautiful. You are loved. And in you, God is well pleased. He is well pleased with you. That is who we are. That is who we are. Brings me to my second part of the morning. We are God's children. Now, what we do as God's children, what are the expectations? Look with me. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Right? As children imitate and mimic their father, so we are to imitate and mimic our father. Right? So my dad was a pastor. My uncle was a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. My great uncle was a pastor. I am a pastor. Part of knowing me as my father's son is me being a pastor. Right? If uh, LeBron James... If you're the son of LeBron James, what would you expect? He'd be pretty good at basketball. Right? If you're the son of Chip Gaines, right? What would you expect to be true of Chip Gaines' son? He could fix up anything. It's the same with us. Jesus says this really fascinating thing in John 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. We are to imitate our Father. And actually, one of the cautions, one of the warnings in this passage is that if we live and act and love nothing like our Father, the text asks us if we really are his children. Because there are three expectations. There are three ways that we imitate our Heavenly Father in how we love, in what we hate, and everything in between. And how we love, and what we hate, and everything in between. First, and how we love. Look with me at verse 2 of Ephesians 5. The first walk. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. To be a child of God, to have God as our Father, means we love like this. If nothing else, we are known for how we love. Sometimes we can confuse love with other things, I think. With being nice, with being generous, with being kind, with being friendly. But love is rooted, the definition of love is rooted in the act of Jesus on cross. And there are two parts of the definition. First, it says this, Christ gave up everything. He gave up everything. He gave up his life, and he even was forsaken by his father, and he gave up the love of his father on the cross. 
So if we are going to love, love must include some sort of sacrifice, some sort of giving up of something incredibly valuable to us. The second is the context of what he loved. Christ loved those who didn't love him. Right? He didn't have like a, a group of people that were asking him, begging him, would you please sacrifice for us? No. You read the Gospels and he was ridiculed and mocked. He was betrayed and finally given over to be crucified. So love in its purest form is not when things are going well. It's not when all is just dandy and lovely. Love in its purest form is when there is conflict and towards people who don't like us or even have betrayed us. A few years back, there was a shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. You probably heard about it. Um, a younger white male entered a church and ended up um, shooting nine African Americans. And they came to the court, and one of the daughters of the mother who was killed, her name was Ethel Lance. She died, and her mother Nadine was able to go to court. She had a chance to speak to the shooter. And she says, she says this. She says, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. That's not kindness. That's not being friendly. That's not being nice. That is love in its purest form. No one has to wonder who Nadine's father is. No one should wonder who our father is. You see, the cross was meant to create this domino effect, this chain reaction in us as believers that this one single great act of love would knock down all of us and we would continue to spread and to act and to love as he loved us. That's the first expectation. The second, not only what we, or how we love, but what we hate. Look with me at verse 8. He says, Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. We walk in love, and now we walk in light. And so as believers, what that means is that we are to hate darkness. If you walk and you love the light, then instinctively you hate the darkness. And the darkness is described in our passage in verses 3 and 4. It says, But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. To be a child of the Father means that we are to hate the darkness of sexual immorality. And that word covers, it covers it all. all right, he's not pinpointing one way or one uh, immoral act, but he's covering everything. He's covering lust and adultery and affairs. He's covering Fifty Shades of Grey. He's covering homosexuality. He's covering, he's covering it all. Those things are not to be named among my children. Seems a little bit daunting. Seems a little bit unrealistic, unrealistic even, given our culture. 
And so what's the key for those things not to be named among us? Let's think about this from Jesus' perspective. We know Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus was completely sinless. Right? He met every single expectation of the Father. And that's astounding in general terms, but it's even more astounding when you think about it in specific terms. Right? There was no sexual immoral act, thought, motivation, desire, fantasy, anything named among Jesus. Never, not a once. How could that be? How could that be? There are several reasons to that, but let's go back to Matthew 3. And the Father said what to Jesus? You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Jesus had the complete, full, joyous love of the Father. He had it. And he had no need to go searching for it anywhere else. See, I'm convinced that our sexual immorality issues are not about desire. It's maybe part of it. It's not about our desires as much as about our listening. Right? We have grown accustomed to, to mishearing or ignoring the words of our Father. And so we begin to pursue and search and find love and everywhere else but where he has told us. And he says, you are loved. In you I am well pleased. So if you are struggling in this area, it's not about stopping anything right now. Right now it's about starting to listen again and to hear what the Father says about you. That's the second expectation. We would know what to hate. And the third and final is everything in between. Everything in between. Look with me at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's a walk of wisdom. As children of the Father, we are to imitate him in being wise. Now, what does it mean to be wise? Well, it gives us actually a pretty good definition. Verse 16, making the best use of time. A wise person makes the best use of their time. But the question is, what's the best use of your time? Right, you're going to go home today. What is the absolute best use of your time today, this week, this month? There's a few things listed here, right? If you continue on, you'll see he talks about alcohol and worship and uh, a few other things. But I think the main thing that is worthy of our time, or what a wise person truly knows, is that their time is better spent after their eulogy than their resume. If you are truly wise, you know that you are to imitate your father more than you are to make a fortune. Right? More than making profits, you are to be forgiving debts. More than building your career, you should be pursuing your character. That's what a wise person does. You see, at the end of this year, one of two things will be changed. At the end of this year, one of two things will be more impressive, either your resume or your eulogy. You will either be someone that people want to hire or someone people want to become. 
And the question is, which one is it going to be? In this passage, God calls us to imitate Him. To become people that are full of love. To be people that are against sexual morality. To be people who make the most use of their time. And it's not that we do those things to get His love. It's because we have it. We do them because we are His children. And in Jesus, He has already pronounced and affirmed to us, You are my child. And in you I am well pleased. The more we listen, the more childlike we are this year, the more we will be transformed in 2018. Let's pray. Father, you uh, expect a lot from us. God, you expect us to love how you loved, which is... (laughs) incredibly difficult you expect us to hate sexual immorality the way you hate sexual immorality and that too is daunting and father you expect us to make the best use of our time and pursue our eulogies more than our resumes and that seems difficult as well God but we thank you that even though your expectations are high you have given us that much more God, you have given us your son. A son that you love and who you cherish with a fierce and a strong love. And because we believe in you and when we believe in you, we can hear that same thing. God, may we hear that afresh today and may that help us to imitate you as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.